Welcome to What Is It About the Weather, a podcast where we explore the many ways that weather does find an intertwining aspect into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek. This week, weather in our life spaces. It'll make some sense. When I, I, yeah, I'm working on the title. Don't, don't actually like the title on this episode. Sometimes, you know, I always try to do titles with a little question to them. Sometimes they just don't flow real well. So the title may change by the time the episode is published, or it may not, or I may just have a bad title. It happens. Not a big deal. As you guys know, I've been mentioning for, I don't know, since I even, you know, came out of hiatus with the podcast, that there's just been this construction project going on, went on and off throughout COVID as well. Because about the time they were going to shut it down, you know, because after they met all the security-related activities, things started opening up here again, and, and so on and so on. doesn't matter. But it has impacted kind of how I think about when I'm going to record, when I'm going to record time-wise, you know, in the week, even time of day. It was funny this week. I noticed it was getting quieter, quieter out there. And the next thing I know, read a little story about how the company that was in charge of the construction project went belly up. And they had quite a few projects in the region. Fairly, I guess, big construction company. Not huge. Well, not small either. But for all intents and purposes, the, this project is kind of on hold. I, my impression from reading about it is somebody else pick it up, but... Who knows? So that may influence things again. It's not going to influence things in the short term. I, you know, I'm more often than not kind of waiting to the weekend to record. But the funny thing was this weekend, they've got a little festival going on in our area. And it's hot here. I mean, you know, if you took last weekend and you took this weekend and you did an average or created a mean right, of those two weekends, it would probably be completely normal for this time of year. Last weekend was particularly cold. This weekend, I mean, we're talking temperatures in the mid-90s Fahrenheit, mid-30s Celsius. It's it's pretty warm, particularly for this time of year. And it's got people cranky. The festival's got some streets closed, and, you know, this area can sometimes have some traffic issues to begin with. So if you hear honking horns or that kind of stuff, yeah, any case. Weather contributing to a little road rage out there, I'm thinking. To be expected. I, mean, I know it, it raises my blood pressure. I went for a ride this morning and did it early. So one of the things, you know, when you live further north or south in the southern hemisphere, you have this effect in the, you know, the summer season that days are just particularly long and it gets starts getting light here before 5 a.m. So I got up and went out for a ride this morning. It got too hot, but I mean, it was. I got home before 9 a.m. and it was already in the mid 80s. Heesh. So right, right around 30C or so by the time I got home. Well, enough of me not being real thrilled with my weather. Eh, it comes and goes. I had a neat thunderstorm pass through the other day. So it, it all balances out in the end. I can always find some good weather in the mix of the crazy weather, too. Let's talk a little bit about weather. Now, something I also did yesterday, I got out on Saturday, and I went to 
something that's just reopened here in the area. So to get to the Statue of Liberty, you have to take a ferry. Now, you can take them from New York or New Jersey, a couple different places you can get them. But for all throughout the you know the whole covid thing is even though some things reopened that that never did and and you got two elements to it you got Ellis Island which is the celebration about immigrants coming to America and it was kind of the main processing station on the east coast for i don't know a block of let's say 50 years i don't know exactly how long it was but you know a block of period in the early 1900s to the mid 1900s if you will and then you've also got this other island that's the Statue of Liberty. So they are two separate islands. I mean, they're kind of right next to each other. So I went over and paid a visit to the Statue of Liberty as well. Something I've not been able to do since I've been here because, you know, by the time it got warm last year, everything was in lockdown. And I was reminded, it's not my first time in the Statue of Liberty, but I was reminded of some remarkable aspects of that architectural structure so it's not just you know a piece of art it's a piece of design because this thing had to be designed to exist in in the outside world it's a fairly big structure right and a lot of people don't realize that when hurricane slash superstorm sandy hit this region back in 2012 I mean, it, there's still impacts. Like if you go through any of the tunnels that go under the Hudson River between New York and New Jersey, if you go to many things, the any buildings that exist at that time, you can still, even today, you can drive down certain areas that have not been renovated. Or you can still see waterline impacts. And the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island were both impacted by that, the base structures. But the Statue of Liberty, man, she did pretty good. Right, she withstood it pretty well, and there's some reasons behind that. But I was called back to a little childhood thing: the three little pigs. I mean, you know, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But you know, there's this wolf; he's going to go around, and all the three pigs they they start with a each of them build a house, right? So one of them builds it out of straw, and the other one builds it out of sticks, and the other one builds it out of bricks. And of course, the wolf goes up, and he's going to huff and puff and blow it over. And of course, the first two come down, and the third one, it stays up because it's made of bricks, and it's going to be a strong structure. You know what, though? Bricks aren't always a good thing. And it was one of the reasons when you look back at where buildings went from these huge brick structures that just became so incredibly heavy without internal support, they couldn't really get any higher. But the use of metals, particularly steel as a structure, but also iron, gave rise to skyscrapers. But the Statue of Liberty is a little different. She's green, right? Happens because she's copper. But what people don't realize, most people don't realize, is she's actually pretty thin. Now, in the U.S., not all countries have a penny, right? But a lot of countries have a small coin that's pretty lightweight. Here it's the penny. It's got copper and not not as much copper as it used to, but the outside's copper. And if you take two pennies, right, two U.S. pennies, and you stack them on top of each other, and you look at the, the width that that creates, so it's about... Two and a half millimeters. That's as thick as most of the Statue of Liberty's 
shell is. Pretty wild when you think about it. Now, inside, there is what once was an iron structure. It's now made of more of steel than it was iron. There's a skeleton, if you will, that holds all that frame together. But it's because of that design, and there's kind of a shock absorber system. And if you've ever, you still can't go back in the Statue of Liberty, but if you've ever been in it or if you ever get a chance to, it's kind of neat because it really gives you a way to visualize how architects take steps for structures that are going to be exposed to a lot of weather. And this one, it's a little different, right? It's not a standard shape. It's not some uh, geometrical shape that, you know, you design a certain way that can withstand winds and behaviors and whatever other elements are going on. This was, you know, it's got all these different angles and stuff. But wind, it does pretty well with. And it's amazing when you think about it, because someone, I read an article in, in looking at this that someone said, had it been slightly thicker or had it been made of other materials, it probably would have been toppled over due to the storm. Because this one's, it's particularly exposed. Unlike a lot of places where skyscrapers are kind of, they, they form a concentration, if you will. So not every angle they're exposed. Statue of Liberty is just out there and it's exposed. And so the winds from every direction can really pummel it. But it highlights the fact that architects have been considering weather elements for ages, right? And they think about that to some extent. Have you ever seen one of those architectural drawings and the, by the time a building gets done, it looks completely different? Well, a lot of times things like weather are what influence those changes. It really looks neat in, in a sketch, but it may not be feasible to do. You know, you start getting structural engineers involved and, and other people involved, and sometimes they've got to bring architects back to earth. Or an artist design getting to a true architectural design gets scaled back. But there are amazing things that can be done. Wind is probably, you know, the big thing when you think about big buildings, right, is how is that building going to survive wind? And what most of them use is some method. Most of them actually do move in the wind. If you've ever been up in a tall skyscraper, you've probably noticed that if you're there on a windy day and you really concentrate, you can kind of get a, a sensation the building's moving. Some will move a little more than others, but they're, they're more or less designed to do that. Now, you don't want them to do too much. I mean, that's the, the contrast, right? You want them to have some flexibility to be able to withstand that wind. So you don't want it too rigid, but at the same time, you don't want it flopping around so much that the structural integrity is deteriorated on that building. And there's a variety of things they can do to do that. And one of them is they more or less create a dampening tool. Now, most buildings, you'll never see this, but one skyscraper that is in uh, Taipei, Taiwan, that was built, I think it was the tallest building for a while in the early 2000s. It's about 500 meters. I don't know. I don't remember the exact height, but this thing has in, in towards the top, this huge pendulum type feature. It's a ball of metal, if you will. I don't actually remember the exact construction material that sits at the top of this building, but you can go and see it. You know, some places you go and you go to look out the building. This thing, you can actually go in on the inside and see it. And this big metal ball, if you will, it's about, you know, 
if I remember correctly, it's somewhere between five and six meters, around 18 feet or something, 660 metric tons. This thing's enormous, right? But its purpose is to be like a shock absorber. So as the wind's blowing in the building, really what you're trying to do is you don't want a harmonic to get out of control because we've seen that. Actually, there's a famous bridge thing. I wish I'd put this in the show notes. I don't think I put this one in there. In the U.S. where this bridge kind of, it got worse and worse and worse, right? Until the bridge just got torn up. So a lot of, whether it's a bridge or whether it's skyscrapers, use this sort of feature, but you usually can't see them. And they use it, you know, as I've mentioned in my time in Chile with earthquakes, it's similar sort of systems. The whole idea is to kind of dampen that harmonic. So it can Sometimes in, in Chile, they use these kind of big rubber band systems at the base of the buildings too, to kind of take, it allows the building to move, but it takes the, the wave feature out of it to kind of bring stability to the building. And that's what's done in this case. And that same design kind of style with the shock absorbers inside the Statue of Liberty and this thin outer layer, right, by it not weighing too much, it's designed to move with the wind, right? It gives it flexibility in those moments. But even the use of metal in that, and that is why... One of the reasons that when you see statues out in public, you know, you'll see them use copper and brass and sometimes bronze, you know, the Bronze Age. The metals, you know, it gives you this ability to create shapes and do things that other things can't. Now, I think we're going to really see a change with things like 3D printing and other composite, you know, like in riding a bike, it, mine is it's carbon composite, right? And those things will shape the way the future works. But in terms of the external design versus the internal design, metal is what really changed how architects could think about spaces. But an interesting thing, another trend that's kind of changed is back in the day, people really did think about weather. I grew up in, in the southern U.S., hot, and it used to be that homes there had big, tall ceilings, so in the summer that heat could escape and further up into the structure. And now that's kind of an in thing to do as well. Because there's this desire to get away from using so much air conditioning and heating, and they're doing something called passive architecture, where they go in and they think about all those elements, right? Where, you know, where you are in terms of the general climate, but also the the different weather extremes that you might experience and, and different things, how to minimize the impact right? But how do I even leverage that? So if you're in, a, in an area that has a certain wind flow, you might design it to create a natural flow during the day to keep things at a, at a certain temperature. Or if you're in an area that gets a lot of rain, you might change the roof structure such that it collects. I saw this, and I did put this one in the show notes. It collects the rain into like a V-shaped roof, right? And it pulls it up such that the sun can then actually heat it. Now you're going to lose some of the water probably from, from evaporation, but it also gives a chance to, to UV it, if you will, and kill off any bacteria that might be in there. It's kind of a really neat thought process. So as we have things like metal that can be shaped differently, and actually metal is a great surface for dealing with sunlight and, and because you can put it at angles a little easier than some other materials, it gives you the possibility of doing things that are more energy efficient or that create 
a home in a space that's just better situated for the environment that it's around. So if you're in a really hot desert area, you know, it's not uncommon for structures to sometimes use the earth, if you will, as one of the walls, because the, as you get into the earth, you create a more stable temperature effect. And so you kind of always, you can regulate it a little bit and you can leverage that in the design. But you also want to make it look good. You know, it's not just about throwing up a building or a structure. It's about how that art component comes into play, which is how do you leverage where you are, and that includes the weather component, and create an optimal design that's both aesthetically pretty and functionally useful. But one of the neat things, like I said, about metal, and this is true of the Statue of Liberty, you know, people always... I guess that people don't think about it. She's green, right? You, have you, okay, so I talked about pennies a second ago. I had some shiny pennies. I did a recording for a, a new little, I don't know, video series that I'm working on. And, you know, shiny copper pennies. Well, the Statue of Liberty used to look like that. And I even worked in a building in Atlanta. One of my first jobs working for IBM. The IBM Tower in Atlanta, as it was called back in the day, had a copper roof. But it very quickly became green, right? And it's a good thing. And it's the same for the Statue of Liberty. That's actually a protective layer. So copper carbonate forms, and it doesn't deteriorate the metal. It actually creates a barrier against other weather elements, such as sun and, and wind and rain and those sort of things. So other things that, let's say that wind is picking up, you know, sand or other debris, it, it interacts with that carbonate level versus the copper itself. So it creates that protective layer. And this is true of other metals as well. Aluminum does the same thing. But for instance, one, one reason people use brass sometimes instead of copper, even though they both kind of achieve that thing, brass stays shinier longer, right? It, it, it keeps more of that metallic color. So in game, a lot of it depends on what you're looking at. But one of the things where the Statue of Liberty failed is even though it's got this protective layer, the salt was horrible for the interior iron structure. So while they've replaced it and it's steel and they can do some more, steel has the benefit, unlike iron, that you can add some components to it that makes it a little more able, like stainless steel and things like that, to withstand the elements. But end of day, man-made metals, ones that, that we create from ores, all corrode. And rust is very different, right, than this patina effect. And we talked about the patina. Actually, there was an episode I did in, in November where I talked about metal as a tool and how metal you know, works with weather. So I'll put a link in the show notes. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and listen to that. So while the iron and steel aren't going to hold up, right, this copper outer layer is great, but you know, copper's got its weaknesses too. It's not as strong. So even though it's, it's malleable and you can shape it well, it doesn't hold form well and you can't, you know, build the world on top of it. So it's all these trade-offs and it's not just with metal, but architects use this with everything. I, you know, I think I'll do maybe some deeper dives on this, but you know, I thought it would be just good to introduce the idea that weather really does shape what, you know, not just the engineering part of it, but, you know, there's this one of these huge buildings that's gone up in Dubai where they really thought about the way the wind comes into it and designed the structure such that the winds, the predominant winds, they, they 
positioned it such, and they built the kind of a pyramid-type shape, you don't necessarily think about it, that actually the winds, by interacting with the building, make the building stronger such that there's less stress for how high it is. So they think about that. So it's not just how do you avoid the weather, it's how do you leverage the weather? How do you use the weather to the advantage of what you're building? There was an article I came across. This is not a new topic, right? That was some journal from 1917. It's great. You can go in and look at it. There's an old PDF, and I, I think it was just like Scientific American or something like that. So just a, an old journal that talks about weather and climate and architecture. So it's, it, 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 and, you know, again, you look at architecture and you go and you look at regional architecture, right? What, Things were like long before we could do all the things we do now. And it's real easy to see whether it's the way the roofs are pitched or the materials that they work with, you know, why you have some areas that have clay roofs versus others that have used stone or straw. And while those things happen, and so often, it, you know, the weather has come into play. And so maybe weather is one of those components that really helps shape the idea of architecture and the beauty of architecture with the reality of how it needs to be. I don't know. It's just kind of a neat thing. Thought I might share that with you. I've got another kind of, I don't know, weather and its influence in, in style that we'll get to next week as well. Okay, kind of hitting it a couple back to back. Any case, I'm going to let you go. Enjoy your summer. I hope you found this kind of introductory dive into weather and its influence in architecture. Interesting. And again, look for a real life example around you. If you've got some sort of large structure, something that's unique and different, maybe read a little bit about the history because quite often those stories are kind of neat. And people that are involved in those structures love to tell how you know it can withstand this type of weather or that type of weather and how it was designed. And those are stories that usually are, are captured somewhere in all that. Any case, let me know. If you've got a good example and it's something you want me to dig into, heck, I'd be glad to do it too. What is it about the weather at gmail.com? And I can hear those people getting loud out there right now. Catch me, Mark underscore Jelinek, on Twitter or what is it about the weather on Twitter. But before these horns start going crazy, like I said, I'm going to let you go because, like I said, there's a little road rage, weather-related road rage out there. Just a reminder that there's much more to weather than the weather itself. <laughs>